on behalf of the Canadian people, welcome to the Gay and Grey podcast. <laughs> My first name is Keith. Mm-hmm. And of course, with the French, and actually the Israelis can't say the TH. They were doing terrible things with it. What does it sound like when someone gets Keith wrong? Kite, Keith, Keith, Keith. I couldn't take it. So fortunately, I have a middle name. So I, when I sign, it's K David. Okay, I was I wondered about that because I noticed that, and uh, I wasn't sure what the K stood for. Yeah, it was so Keith for with a T H. Yeah, if it, if it was Kevin, it would have been fine, but it's Keith, <laughs> and they can't say it. So why put them through the agony? Why put me through the agony? And I have a middle name, which is easy for everybody. So yeah, right. David is a good easy one. Yeah. yeah, though it's confusing now because there's it's a common name, and uh, that's okay. Yeah. Okay, ask me a question. Okay, well, actually, I I really want to hear your reading. Could you... Oh, you want me to do that first? Yeah. All right. If you're, if you're ready for it. Well, let me just explain how I got to write the book. Okay. So I was sitting in my living room and, and cogitating, and I thought, well, I've seen the evolution of gay liberation from when it was illegal, when I was growing up, which was a terrible time, to gay marriage and equal rights, and I thought I would never live to see that, that I've seen the whole evolution, and in fact, I was part of it. What does that feel like to have seen that? Liberating. I mean, it's such a different world now. I mean, I grew up in fear. Fear of discovery, fear of not meeting my parents' expectations. Being Jewish, you know, they were looking forward to my getting married and having kids, and I knew I could never meet that expectation. Although, of course, nowadays I probably could, having kids anyway. So it's been from fear to lit feeling of liberation. Unbelievable. And I was actually part of that. Because when I lost my partner, I and three others who'd also lost their partners, we, went, we applied for the spouse's pension, and the government refused us. Now, in how, tra- did, how did they refuse you? Like, was it a letter? Did they? Yeah, a letter. They just refused that I was, was not eligible. But heterosexual common-law couples, if one of them passed away, the survivor got the pension. They didn't have to be married. And we were actually considered as a common-law couple. How long do you have to be together to be considered a common-law couple? I think three years it was. And how time. long were you together? On and off, 23 years. Yeah, so yeah. you definitely... Oh, we certainly <laughs> applied. We were certainly uh, eligible. Anyway, so we went to the Quebec Human Rights Commission. They took on... Because in the Quebec Charter of... Was it Human Rights and Liberties? I'm not sure if that's the right title. There's no to be no discrimination on the grounds of sexual orientation. And this was a clear case of that. And the Quebec Human Rights Commission sued the government on our behalf. I think it was the Pensions Board and the Attorney General of Quebec. That was in 2004 it started. And we went through the different levels of the courts up to the highest Quebec court, the Quebec Court of Appeal. It took us eight years. And we won. And we won, not only did we win, but we won with retroactive payments. Oh, amazing. So I got $70,000. Well, congratulations. Um, Yeah. Well earned. Yeah. I mean, how did you make it through the eight years of a struggle well, like I'll that? Well, I'll tell you, I was prepared to give up, but there was one of the four of us who kept pushing us to go on, and the lawyer was confident that we would win. He was a wonderful lawyer. And, you know, because of this other guy, Real, he was his first name. I can't remember his second name, but he really pushed us to carry on. And we went through to the end. And the judge said in his final judgment that this, in view of the changing social values, this case should never have been brought. So we certainly won. And that was a step on the way to gay marriage, where, of course, it no longer applied. That's fantastic. Was that the first time that you had really challenged law and the way things were? Yes. 
Yeah, apart from, I think, one bad debt in the course of my translation <laughs> career. That was, a, that was a small claims court, but, you know, I've never contested the system before, but this was just grossly unfair. Yeah, so we won that case, and when the time came, they just combined that pension with the old age pension. So I get the, the top whack of the old age pension, which awesome. is good. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that there's anything that comes to mind that you're noticing needs to be changed in terms of like law and, and things Not that law, should be challenged? But I understand it, but I think straight people are still unaware and unaccepting to some extent of gay people. Well, I must admit our values are different. I mean, I don't know whether other people experience this. In my case, I get along very well with straight women, but I ha seem to have nothing in common with straight men. I don't have any friends who are straight men. It is difficult. Like, as a bisexual woman, it, I find it very difficult to tolerate a lot of straight men. So there's only so many that I have yeah. in my inner circle, and they're, you know, they're vetted because it's very difficult. The, the, the culture of heteronormativity, and especially among straight men, is just so radically different yeah. from from really everybody else and it's so strange that, that that should be the case because it is so dominant even though the majority of people like you know all of or most women and people in the gay community and beyond I think like a lot of racialized minorities any sort of minority group tends to be more open to differences tends to be more tolerant and I think it could be summed up in one word competitiveness. Mm. I think straight men are brought up to be competitive, to overcome the other, not to excel in terms of their own skills, but to beat somebody down in order to succeed. And I think that's where it comes from. I mean, I, I, I hate competitive sports. Oh, me too. But the whole point is to beat the other one. And I think that's where it comes from. And I think perhaps it's necessary because perhaps straight men are naturally aggressive and they need to discharge their aggressiveness and it comes through sports or war and I think perhaps it's some many of the social problems unfortunately I, I mean I hate to say this are because there's no war war brings people together I, I mean it's a terrible thing because you're killing people but I mean an outside danger brings people together and I think it's affected the gay community in that way in my experience organi most organizations have had a struggle to exist because of gay liberation there's no outside pressure to stay together. I mean, I'm Jewish. There used to be gay Jewish groups. And to my knowledge, well, there is one, but I don't think it's very active now. When there was a perceived sense of oppression, we hung together. Now that's gone. There's no reason, unless there's a focus, there's no reason to stay together. And most people are not religiously observant. And if they didn't want to live their religion together, there was no reason to stay together. So I'm a believer in a perceived sense of oppression. I think it helps people to, get, to stay together. The, the obvious example of that, in my experience, when I was a, a child, was the London Blitz. Mm. The way the Londoners, or, yeah, Londoners mainly, held together. It wasn't maybe only Londoners, it was other people too. But. For everyone's benefit and uh, the people who may be listening at home, who maybe are not familiar with it, could you give a sort of general explanation of, of what the London Blitz was all about? My first memory was one of the, I think they called doodlebugs, one of the rockets going overhead and the motor cutting out. And I think my mother came into my bedroom and leaned over my cot because when the motor cut out, it meant that the rocket was coming down and was going to explode and we heard the explosion a few miles away after that. We actually left 
our house in a reasonably close suburb of London to the centre, because of the Blitz, we moved further out where there were no real bombs. But, I mean, the London Blitz was terrible. My father commuted into the city every day for work. But, I mean, everybody must have seen, well, war is war. You know, you see buildings collapsing and obviously people dying. And war is a terrible thing. How old were you when, when that was happening? Oh, I was three or four. Oh, so yeah. it's fuzzy memories at best. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the first thing I can remember, that's all. But I'm still only 14 and a half, which is an actual miracle. Well, I mean, <laughs> we are sitting with Benjamin Button in, in the flesh. So. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Getting younger every day. Yes. <laughs> anyway, I was going to say how I, how I got to write the book. So um, I thought to myself, you know, I've seen the evolution of gay liberation from the beginning to final freedom, or equality, I should say. And I thought, well, what if I'd been born in a different time? Well, I don't have the imagination to look forward in time, and I don't think the situation would apply, but I could look backwards. And I thought to myself, my grandfather was an immigrant from Poland, and I thought, what if I had been born as my grandfather in, in Poland, in a shtetl, which is a Jewish village, but as a gay man, how would I have survived? And all of a sudden, in my mind's eye, I saw this person sitting opposite me who was dressed as an ultra-Orthodox Jew with the big round fur hat and the black smock and, and the, the white socks. And I said to him, well, who are you? He said, well, I'm your distant cousin. I said, well, how come? He said, well, I, I lived before you. And I said, conversation came round, and I said to him, well, I couldn't use the word gay. I said, do you like men? And he said, yes. And then I said to him, well, how did you survive? And that is the story of my book. And of course, this was a completely closed society. Now, I made my ancestor a brilliant scholar and a brilliant violinist. And as a scholar, he went to what we call a yeshiva, which is a seminary to study Talmud and things like that. And in that seminary, the students are coupled off. They're, they're in, in couples. They study together. So in my story, he went through a series of study partners, and eventually there was one who was gay. And eventually they have an affair, and the only place they can make love is in the forest. Which uh, I find so romantic. Yeah. Anyway, they're discovered by another student who happens to be passing by, and the student tell, eventually tells his father, who tells the rabbi. Of course, that is the drama, because the rabbi cannot accept this. I tried to make the rabbi sympathetic because, you know, we're all victims of our time. And at that time, it was an abomination. Why do you think it, it was an abomination? Because that, that is the same across many different religions of a certain time period. And, and it, there's, there's definitely different opinions as to whether or not that is inherent in scripture or, or where it comes from. Well, it comes from the Leviticus. I don't remember the exact chapter and verse, but it says if a man lies with another man as he lies with a woman, it's an abomination. Hmm. And probably the reason for that was because they wanted to expand the population. And probably it was practiced by other tribes around the children of Israel. And the very fact that it was practiced by non-Jews made it an abomination. Hmm. But, you know, this is not a matter of choice. Certainly not in my case. I, you know, I had no choice. I couldn't be heterosexual. Did you try? No. I had never, I had no, never, no desire to sleep with 
with a woman or with a household pet for that matter, you know. <laughs> there was no desire. Yeah. But there was a strong desire to, to, to sleep with other men. And growing up, it was very, very difficult because I was isolated and I isolated myself. And at one point, and I was bullied at school because I was very feminine. I used to practice walking like a man in front of a mirror. <laughs> anyway, it was a hard time. And at the age of 15, I, I just went to bed for three days. My parents obviously knew something was wrong. And they took me to see the old family doctor, the former family doctor. And he sent my mother out of the room and he said, now tell me what's wrong. And I said, nothing. Thank God I said nothing at that time because probably I would have been subjected to shock therapy. Which, which would have, common at the time. Which would have probably ruined my life. I met a friend from England here later who'd had that and his life was an absolute wreck. So I have a sort of guardian angel, I think, that stopped me from telling the truth. I mean, my parents didn't even know what gay was. Did you ever come out to your parents? Well, yes. I had a series of disastrous affairs. And I've always liked writing. And I wrote a farewell letter to one of my lovers. Mm. And I thought, well, this reads really well. And I made a copy of it and put the copy in my sports jacket, which my mother sent to the cleaners. Oh, no. <laughs> so the cat was out the bag. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I had been... By that time, I was 23. I'd moved out of the house. I had an, an apartment. And my father confronted me. I thought to myself, well, what, what's the point of lying? I'm not going to play games for the rest of my life. And I said yes. And it was very interesting. The whole dynamic of the family changed because until then, my father had wanted me to be a man. And I could never fulfill his expectations. I don't know what they want. I think, yes, they wanted me to date women. Anyway, when they found out it was my father who was very sympathetic, mm. and my mother, who had protected me from my father, never, ever accepted the fact that I was gay. She thought it was a matter of choice. Mm. And she ruined her life because of that, which is unfortunate. How, how did that affect her? Well, she would, she would talk about my two brothers to other friends, never talk about me. Mm. <laughs> well, she came out with two comments which I've never forgotten. She said, the happiest day of my life was when David was born. The unhappiest day was when I found out he was gay. Whoa. And the other one was when she told a cousin who told me, I don't know how David is such a success in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Being gay, I was supposed to fail in everything. Well, that's the, that's the narrative that we're always told, right? That's the narrative that was approved in any sort of media that talked about being yeah. gay. There was, you weren't allowed to have a happy ending. Yeah, exactly. And so you never imagined that you could have one. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I certainly, or I and my partner, Eve, Y-V-E-S, we lived in a beautiful house, which was far more beautiful than the house, houses of my brothers. And my parents came to visit in 1976. My father got along famously with Eve. And then when he passed away, my mother came alone. And there was a total clash between her and Eve because they came from different worlds. Well, she, I mean, given how difficult she found adjusting to knowing that you're gay, I'm not really that surprised that she would also have a hard time accepting your partner. Also, the fact that he was not Jewish. She lived in a oh. completely closed Jewish world. Ghettos are not good. They're not any sort of ghettos. I don't like to, to you know, badmouth my mother, but, you know, it was hurtful. And especially hurtful when she didn't get along with Eve because he was so good to her. He was good to all our guests, but he was especially good to her. Tell me more about Eve. Eve was obviously uh, from here, from La Malbaie. His family 
have always been wonderful towards me, totally accepting. And they even catered to my kosher dietary needs, you know, mm. they always made fish and wonderful people. I'm still in touch with them and I feel very close with them. I mean, I, I, I'm like a brother, like an extra brother. They're terrific people. That's amazing. There were, there were t- ten siblings, well, actually nine when I came along, one of them had died accidentally. But they're, they're wonderful people. I can't speak highly enough of them. Did you have, so you had two brothers growing up. I have two brothers, yes. Yeah, yeah. And how does it feel having so many more siblings in a way? Well, I'm the oldest, and I suppose I feel fairly close with them, but not as close as they feel with each other because they've got more in common. They've both got kids. They accept me because I think they have to accept me because <laughs> I'm their brother and I happen to be gay. Well, I have a good relationship with them. I think it helps that we're on three different continents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes distance is the best thing for yeah. a relationship. <laughs> yeah, but I go and stay with them when I go to London and the other one's in Jerusalem. So, mm. yeah, I, I, I get along with them. When did you come to Canada? 19, in... 1968. And how old were you then? Four. <laughs> <laughs> you don't no, have to No, say. no, no. No, I was 28. That's why the accent stays. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was an adult. Mm-hmm. And it was difficult. Well, of course, immigration is difficult. It took me two years to adapt. I first went to Vancouver, which I hated, from a cultural point of view. I mean, it's a beautiful place, but, you know, you can't live in a postcard. And I'd come from London, so it was very difficult. And it took me about two years to adapt. And then at one point, well, I had a job at Radio Canada, which I hated, what were you doing at Radio Well, Canada? it was a sinecure, actually. I mean, I was hired as somebody's empire to expand his, his staff. I ended up doing audience recruitment for French FM radio. What does that look like when you're recruiting an audience? Well, I mean, it really... There were specialised programmes on FM radio, so if it, I could say it was a series of programmes on psychology. So I would contact the Order of Psychologists and send them brochures encouraging their members to listen thing but basically that was it mm-hmm. to different groups trying to get their members to listen and also Eve at that point we were together but he didn't want to move in with me so the two main areas of my life were blocked and I went to Israel on a leave of absence I was just dissatisfied and I sort of fell in love with the country and I said well something's got to give here and I came back, and I knew I couldn't do anything about the job, but I said to Eve, OK, either you agree at some point that we're going to move in together or I'm just going to move to Israel. And he agreed. And it was a very enriching experience. I'm very grateful for having had that experience. So how, that's did it, how, it, how did it change your relationship? Well, we actually had a trial marriage, sort of. We had a, a adjoining apartments in next-door buildings, and he was at my place all the time. So when his lease was up, I said, you know, it's crazy to, you know, pay money to other people. Let's, let's buy something. So we bought a duplex. And, it, you know, it was very successful. It was a good relationship. But again, I had pins and needles, my middle-age crisis. And I got to a point where I felt static and everything, nothing was going to change until I died. I couldn't stand it. So I took a two-month leave of absence again to go to Israel and decided I wanted to move there. And I did move there, and it didn't work out. I mean, I couldn't make a living as a translator, and that was the main reason for coming back. But, of course, Eve was not faithful to me. There was no reason why he had to be, and he 
contracted HIV and eventually died, and I always had a guilty conscience about that. Why and do you have a guilty conscience about that? Well, because that? if I hadn't left him, he wouldn't have become promiscuous. Mm. I know he, he chose his way and I chose mine, but you know, it still rankles. Well, and it, it's no. not your fault. I well, I know. I know that you. I know that you feel you like you know. There's a difference between feeling and intellectually knowing something, and yeah. I get that. And I just want to reinforce. It's not. I your know, fault. and I can <laughs> rationalize it. It doesn't help. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, it was people's a... actions have consequences on other people, and that's what happened. Mm-hmm. He eventually passed away, but you know, it's life. He had a test, and it was positive. And when he told me, I said, well, now you're going to live. Because I had confronted him at one point. He, he was very, quite promiscuous. And I said to him at one point, are you taking precautions? And he said, yes. But I could tell he was lying. So two days later, I said to him, either you stop this now or we sell the house and we split. And then he became celibate. And he was very depressed. And when he found out that he was HIV positive, I said to him, well, now you're going to start to live. And he lived for seven more years. We had a wonderful doctor from the wow. Jewish General. And he traveled, and he went to concerts and plays. But of course it was a hard time. Mm-hmm. The other thing which we did together, which was a wonderful experience, through the gay Jewish group of the time, we sponsored one of the boat people, a young woman, who lived with us like a daughter. What do you mean, the boat people? The boat people, you really don't know? No, I really don't know. Oh, it was before your time, obviously. The Vietnamese boat people are the people that took to boats when Vietnam became communist and just fled and became refugees. Mm. And the Canadian government sponsored thousands of them, but you had to have a sponsoring family or a group that would pay for her. I mean, they they helped with money, obviously, but the, the gay Jewish group sponsored her and we said we would have her live with us. We had a four-bedroom house. And she came. She didn't have a word of English or French. And she stayed with us, and we sent her to language school. First of all, we sent her to French language school. And then one day, Eve came home from work, and she was crying. And he said, well, what's the matter? She said, well, I'll never be able to visit my sister in Michigan. So he said, why? She said, because I don't speak English. So he said, well, would you prefer to speak, to learn English than French? She said, yes. So we took her out of the school, and we hired a tutor. And... She learned a little bit of English, but she's always lived in a Chinese ghetto and worked in a Chinese ghetto. So at this point, I can't communicate with her because I can't understand her English. It's a shame, but what can I do? Anyway, all this to say that, getting back to the book, I, you know, I, I've lived an interesting life. <laughs> so I, I felt impelled to, to start writing because it was such a fascinating experience to be confronted by this imaginary creature. And then I joined um, a writing group, the Westmount Writing Group, and the facilitator, Alexina Scott-Savage, she helped me greatly with this. And she said, uh, well, I want to hear more about you in the book. So at the end of several different chapters, I have a conversation with this person, and I compare social conditions then, and which still exist in so many places, with our conditions now. So there is a a relevance to modern day. But I will read a little excerpt from it. I'll just explain the situation. The hero is called Yankel, but he decides to change his name to Jonathan because he's going to leave the shtetl where he grew up. And the reason he's leaving is because his parents are pressuring him to marry and also 
the rabbi, having found out about the love affair, has banished his lover as he, and is insisting that Yankel get married. Well, he meets a girl, actually falls in love with her, and she wants six kids. And he realizes that he can't possibly sleep with her, make six kids. So he decides to run away. So that's where this excerpt begins. Yeah. It's not too Intense long. Intense moment. Yeah. So he chose the name Jonathan. And the reason he chose his name, the name Jonathan is because of the biblical hero who obviously had a love affair or, or a brief encounter, a gay encounter with King David, the future King David. Oh. So he chose the name Jonathan, who was his hero. The newly named Jonathan listened to the wheels of the cart as it travelled west away from Ripin. That was the name of the shtetl. He knew that he should look forward to his new life rather than brood over the old. His drastic step, his refusal to be forced into a life that was not for him, had been taken. Now he had to consider his options. His introspection was interrupted by the carter's voice. With a start, Yankel heard the name he had vowed to surrender. So, Yankel, you're leaving us. You're leaving town. Yankel recognized the identity of the carter, Dov Bellman, the father of Schmulik, the boy who had committed suicide. The one thing that Yankel had failed to consider in planning his escape was the fact that the driver of his means of transport would be someone with whom he had shared a crisis, the tragic death of Schmulik. Yankel noticed that the hair below the carter's cap had turned from a dark salt and pepper hue to pure white in the few months since his son's sad demise. Yes, Mr. Bellman, he said, wishing that he could avoid the coming conversation. Mr. Bellman started to hum a nigun, that is, a, a tune without words. Yankel said nothing. Finally, Mr. Bellman said, So tell me, Yankel, what about the wedding? The entire shtetl knew about the forthcoming wedding of the butcher's son. Yankel did not answer immediately. Both he and Dov Bellman knew why Schmulik had killed himself. Perhaps Mr. Bellman would understand Yankel's predicament. I cannot, Yankel spoke softly, faltering. You were saying, I couldn't hear you. Yankel spoke up. I cannot, I cannot marry. Dov Bellman hesitated. Should he pursue this conversation, would he be prying? Then he pondered his own pain on losing his only son, his own and his wife's sense of inadequacy at failing to recognize their son's nature, their boy's change of mood after his betrothal, his real needs. Yankel, he realized, had more in common with his son Schmulik than was apparent. Neither of them was capable of marrying, and all the pressures of community and family could do nothing to change that. Yankel, however, was taking the other option, life. He was giving up everything to be his own person. But what was he leaving behind? Dov Bellman knew what his poor parents would be forced to face. Your parents, how will they feel about this, and the girl? The question tore at Yankel's heart, but anger rose to his lips. Do you think I have not thought about that? Do you think I want to leave? Would I willfully hurt the people most precious to me? What choice do I have? Dov Bellman could find no answers to this stream of questions. He again started humming his nigun. What would he have wanted for his son Schmulik in view of the circumstances? Yankel was blessed with a portable profession. 
he could take his violin with him and earn a living anywhere. Schmurek had been born with no innate talent for anything. Distributing and collecting the books of Talmud in the yeshiva was the most he had been able to do. He had possessed neither the inner resources nor the self-confidence to support himself. So with a marriage already arranged, what alternative did his son have? Dov Bellman gripped the reins of his old horse more, more tightly and stared straight ahead as a single tear trickled down his cheek. He must not blame Yankel for leaving Ripin. Yankel, I'm sorry. Yes, it must have been a very difficult decision for you. Mr. Bellman, had I stayed, I would have caused even more shame and grief than leaving. I could not do that to them. I hope you can understand. Yankel thought of Schmulik. I'm sure you can understand, he added. Then, like a bird taking wing after a storm, a strange sense of liberation raised Yankel's spirits. For the first time since Velvel's, that's his, that's his lover, for the first time since Velvel's hasty departure, Yankel had unashamedly admitted his true feelings to another human being. Dov Bellman remained silent. Then he said with a deep sigh, Oi, Yankel, if we could only live in another world. That's it. Mm, if only. Yeah. So the book has obviously tragedy in it. There's some humour, especially when Yankel's mother goes to see the matchmaker, who's a, a stereotypical, what's the word, a, a gossip. Mm. It's got music, of course, because he's a violinist. Mm -hmm. So I tried to put all these things. Of course, it was a once-in-a-lifetime book. I don't think I'm ever going to write another book. I have, write, I have written vignettes, actually. I looked... Nothing has been... I self-published this book. But the other thing I've written is I looked at my bookcase. And in the bookcase, there are not only books, but mementos, gifts that people have given me or things that I've picked up along the way. And each one has a story to it. So I've taken photos of these and written the story of that particular object. Oh, that's and lovely. And they're quite interesting, I think. Yeah. But, but I've, I'm very disillusioned with the publishing world. I've won five awards for this book, and I could never find a publisher. I've had it translated into French now, and it's with a publisher, and I, I hesitate to ask the translator if he's heard any news. <laughs> but the pub, this French publisher has asked for the whole text, so that's encouraging. Mm -hmm. I would really like to... I'd like to see it in print, not, not because I want the money, but I think that people will understand more what it's like to be gay if they read the book. And it'll give them all... The, the second objective is because I've tried to demystify Judaism. I mean, we have some beautiful traditional customs. We, we live our religion. I mean, Purim is, is how the Jews were, were solved by Queen Esther. Passover is the exodus from Egypt. The equivalent of Pentecost, Shavuot, is like the harvest festival. And Tabernacles is a memento of the journey through the, through the desert, the 40 years of the children of Israel in the desert, where we build booths to, show that, to sort of identify the temporariness of, of life. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah, and of course Hanukkah is the, the war of liberation against which, the Greeks. Which, which is, begins tonight. Be, begins tonight, yes. Yeah. 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 That's the story of the book. <laughs> anyway, I've, I've gone into the, some of the details of the Jewish festivals which he lived, and, well, which we still live, some of us. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of ignorance about Judaism too. 
And it is a beautiful and actually humane religion, very humane. But, you know, when, when ultra-Orthodox Jews go back to Leviticus about the abomination of gay people, there are, that text was written like 3,000 years ago, and, and there are so many things in it which do not, cannot apply nowadays. I mean, the ultimate thing is slavery. The laws of slavery are very humane. Well, of course, I think these laws might apply only to Jewish slaves. I mean, if, okay. if they were from another nation and they were in slavery, I'm not sure they applied. But for Jewish slaves, they have to be released, I think, after seven years, certainly after 50. Because in my mind, slavery is never acceptable under any circumstances. Of course. That's our, that's our values now. Yeah. So there's one thing which cannot apply today. There's another law about a man who suspects his wife of adultery and she's brought before the priest and there's this toxic liquid that is put together from a sacrifice with ashes in it and goodness knows Whoa. what. She's made to drink it. If she survives, she's innocent. If she's guilty, she dies. Oh, that's basically a witch trial. Well, <laughs> absolutely. You know, there are things... You have to put it in the context of the time. What was the intention of that? Well, of course, women were possessions at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, they had no rights. Very few, well, actually, they did have rights, yes. If they were divorced, they would get a settlement. But it was the, the divorce was at the choice of the man, of course. Mm. But I'm not saying the, these laws were wrong at the time, but they can't apply today. No, absolutely not. And if homosexuality was a matter of choice, I could understand it better. Well, it may be a choice for some people. Certainly it was never for me. Well, sexuality is, is very much a spectrum, and, yes. and people are, are in all sorts of spots in, yeah. on that. Well, the first time the hero in this book was seduced, it was by a married man. Mm, exciting. Oh, it is. <laughs> very sexual and sensual. <laughs> and there's also a funny scene there where the seducer's wife is, is rather masculine, and women were not supposed to sing in the presence of men. Really? Yeah, because men get excited too easily. <laughs> It's too exciting. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> anyway, so we have the grace after meals and we sing. And she, first of all, she started tapping the rhythm on the table. And then she started singing out of tune. And then, her, you know, the women had to wear wigs. So her wig went crooked. And the uncle, the hero, has hysterics. He's leading the, the grace after meals. And he looks at this woman who's doing all the wrong things and looks ridiculous. And he has absolutely hysterics and has to run out of the room. <laughs> Anyway, the, the woman's husband goes after him and then they sit in the back garden and he eventually seduces him. And he's mm. disgusted by this, absolutely disgusted because, oh. you know, he, he believes in marital fidelity and this man has seduced him. And then he ignores him from the rest, for the rest of the weekend. He's just a guest. The, the couple are just a guest in the house. To clear things up, is he, like, is he convinced? Is it, when... What, when I am seduced by someone, I assume that I am then also interested, usually. Sometimes it's non-consensual, but, but I'm curious about the, the level of consent in that oh, scene. Well, he, he was very excited. Hmm. I mean, he'd never had sex with anyone before, and the man was attractive. But the way he was treated with scorn afterwards and ignored, and also the fact that there could be no, nothing more than pure sex in this encounter because the man was there with his wife and kids young kids he, he was just disgusted by the whole experience fair enough i mean I, there's definitely 
you know, you can have your sexuality and then romanticism. And for a lot of people, those are, are need to be together. Yeah. And so that would be very disturbing if that's, sure. if that needs to be together and it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, but I agree about the spectrum, yes. But the tragedy of the story, of course, is that as soon as the rabbi found out, he made sure that the two boys never met again. But at the end of the, at the, end of the book, they do meet, and Velvel, the lover, tells his story. Well, I shouldn't really preempt the story, but I, but I will. <laughs> and he was forced into a marriage, and one day when he got... Well, again, poor him, you're supposed to get drunk. And he got drunk... And his wife had sex with him, and she got pregnant. And she had a baby boy. And he named the boy Yanko after his lover. Mm. But then he couldn't have sex with her ever again. And they divorced. And his life was ruined, absolutely ruined. Well, I, like marriage tends to be, especially in more traditional cultures, it's very much part of your economy, part of your acceptance, and when those things degrade, then that affects all parts of your life. It's not just that relationship with sure. just your family, it's yeah. also your whole culture. And in Judaism, even today, if you're not married, I think there's a certain amount of disdain or estrangement, let's say. I mean, even today in my synagogue, the only friends I've made actually are either single or divorced women. I wonder what it is about single or divorced women. Well, there's no sexual element to the friendship, obviously. Mm -hmm. I get along with them. I mean, there are not many, but, you know, the few that I know from there, we get along. It might be the same for single women, I'm not sure. A relationship takes a lot of self-discipline, but the alternative is much worse. You know, if one can compromise and understand the other person and give as well as take... Mm-hmm. I mean, there are so many things I regret about what I, about the relationship we had, but overall it was a very good relationship. And I think it failed for me in a way when there was no, no more challenges I could present to us. Mm. I mean, buying, buying, we had three houses in succession. That was always a struggle for me to convince him to, to go ahead with it. But he but he enjoyed it so much. He was a homebody. I mean, he loved the houses. Even going on vacation, he would resist to begin with, but then in, adore the new experience. And of course, the big one was taking in this girl from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. He was such a loving person. I mean, he would give everything to, to the people he loved, from the dog we had to, to Yum, the, the girl. And when he lost them, he was shattered. And, of course, I, I, I feel terrible about having left him. But for me, the urge was so strong to change my life and to have new challenges, my, my own challenges, I, I couldn't resist it. My idea of hell is something which never changes. Mine that is well. my idea of absolute hell. Mine as well. We're yeah. on the same page on that one. <laughs> so marry me, we'll be all right. <laughs> we'll have a beautiful sexless marriage. <laughs> yes, yes. I've thought of that too. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. That's, that's definitely an, an option. I mean, that's something that I, I've definitely thought of as well because I, I've had wonderful, wonderful, loving, roma- like romantic but not sexual relationships with people that I've wanted to, and, you know, we've created a home together. And then, you know, just because the sexual part isn't there, do we have to leave the whole rest of it behind? And, and I think that's why I've gotten into the whole polyamory wing of... What does that mean? I, oh, polyamory. 
So polyamory is, is the alternative to monogamy. And polyamory is more than just being polysexual, but it's the idea that you have more than one love interest. Well, when we, when we were together, even I, we were not monogamous. But if I went on vacation or if he went to see his family, then I'm sure he and I did what we wanted. <laughs> Except I was never very good at cruising. I was terrible. <laughs> I used to go to the bars you know, in the gay village and never meet anybody on a Saturday night. I mean, the only reason I went was to meet somebody, not to drink. And I would buy myself a Mr. Big chocolate bar and I would eat the chocolate bar in the car on the way home and sing to myself, there's got to be something better than this. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my love, that was my love experience on a Saturday night. <laughs> did, did you ever, did you ever like really push yourself to, to try to be like more No, um, I, was, I, was very, I was very faithful to Mr. Big. <laughs> I, I never changed the chocolate bar. <laughs> but I, I saw an interview, who was it with? one of the stars with whom I've grown old. And she said something which I thought was very profound. She said, being old is so much easier than being young. And it's so true. It really is. I mean, I was in conflict of, with everything and everyone when I was growing up, and in isolation too. And now it doesn't matter. Nothing, nothing matters that much, you know. If people don't like me, that's their problem. <laughs> I don't care, <laughs> you know, and yeah. and I'm sort of content with my social circle. I'm not to go. I'm not going to get into my sex life, but never mind. But it's so much easier. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> is there any? I'll tell you. I, I'm, I'm very conscious of of a term to my life, an end to my life. I just pray that I'm not sick for a long time. That's what I just pray for. Mm -hmm. I mean, my fear is pain. And actually, I have a living will anyway. No heroic measures to be taken. But I, the idea of living with pain is a terrible idea. It, it's, it's very frightening. And I, I do believe in medical-assisted suicide. Eve asked me to help him die, and I, I couldn't. I couldn't do it. But I think if somebody... If, if every living moment is pain, either physical or mental... The best thing is to just stop it. Eve's sister just chose that option, and she was serene. It's yeah. a good thing. Well, and if you if you get to plan the the end of your life, you can you can plan it. You know, you can you can shape it the way you want it to be shaped. You can make sure that the people you want to be there will be there. Yeah. And that what happens is how you want it to be. And I think there's that's incredibly powerful and and. I think everyone should be able to have that option if they want it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Anyway, enough of that dead talk. Yeah, let's um, talk about living. Yeah, sure. <laughs> what would you What would you like to do? In the, what's your your bucket list? Do you any, have anything uh, that you would love to do before? When you I was die? growing up, I wanted to see every possible view that anybody could ever see in the entire world. Oh but that goodness. will never happen. You I might have know, to live multiple lives. Yeah, for that. I don't know whether I have a bucket list. I would like to travel more. Any place you haven't been yet? Oh, lots of places. Well, yes, but that you that you would especially like to go to. No, I feel very much at home. In, I feel much more at home in Israel than I do in in the UK. What is it about Israel that you find so compelling? Well, it's a spiritual place. It's got the old and the new. 
It's, it's like no other place on earth. And again, I think people are close together because of the, the danger of everyday life. People do draw closer together. Trauma bonding is a very real phenomenon. Oh, it is, absolutely. Yes. It, the trouble comes when people want to control other people's lives. Mm -hmm. That's the danger. And that's why I love Canada. And I think it's because of the French and the English. You know, both nations have had to tolerate and accept the other. It's been difficult. It's, oh, sure, it's, not it's been, been very easy. difficult. I know, mm -hmm. I lived it. You know, mm -hmm. I was here. But it's made us much more tolerant to difference, any difference. And I think that's wonderful. I think this is the best country in the world. I really do. When you look around, there's nowhere like this country. I want to tell you about the worst moment of my life. Okay. Okay. When even, even I bought this duplex, and we were very happy there for a couple of years. And there was a neighbor two houses down who was an absolute monster. First of all, he, would, he bred dogs illegally in his basement. And then he had a big German shepherd, which he left tied up in the backyard at night. And if anything moved, the dog barked. And it was mm. a loud noise. And I'm a terribly light sleeper. And it really disturbed me. So on two occasions, we called the police. And we told them about this. Anyway, after that, one day I was in doing some gardening in the front yard. And I used to ch chat to this man. And in the middle of a conversation, he said, I know it was you that called the police. I didn't realize what a monster this man was. And I said, well, look, we're both working. We need to sleep at night. You know, and your dog barking wakes me up. He said, if I see either of you two in the back lane, I'm going to shoot you. Oh, my God. I called the police and they're bloody useless. The police. I mean, they didn't yeah. even give him a warning. Nothing. Oh, my God. So we got home from work the next day and there was a window broken. I mean, we, we, the house was on an alley, like a driveway. So there was a window broken. Now, as soon as I hear or see a broken window, as a Jew, I think of Kristallnacht. You know what that is? Yes. You know, when the Jews in Germany were attacked and murdered and synagogues burned and everything. So, of course, I was traumatized by this. Anyway, he said, don't worry about it. He's done it. It won't happen again. So I thought, fine. Two months later... At two in the morning, my bedroom was on the ground floor. I get a brick through my window at two in the morning. Well, I was at the end of my rope. I mean, I called the police. We couldn't prove anything, of course. Anyway, I said to Eve, if this happens again, I said, you can have the house. I said, I'm leaving. I can't, I can't take this. You know, I felt I should do something. I should take revenge. You know, I should fight back. And I, you know, my self-esteem went down the drain and it was a t I couldn't sleep. I looked fabulous. I couldn't sleep and I couldn't eat. <laughs> anyway, anyway, we, we went away for a weekend, and when we came back, there was another window broken. I was so, I was like hot anger. I took the phone and I called this man, and I didn't realize that it was his little daughter that answered. And I just said, We're coming to get you. And I put the phone down. Oh my goodness. That... Well, he didn't step out of the house for 10 days. Good. This man. But I said to Eve, Right, that's it. I can't take it. I mean, we didn't even bother to call the police at that point. And he really cared for me because it was a... We took that house over when it was a slum. We made it into a palace. And he agreed to sell it. And we bought another house. Now, this is... This story, again, demonstrates why I believe in God. I moved to Israel for two years. And then I came back and I ordered the Gazette to be delivered to the house on Saturday. And for the very first time in my life, I looked at the obituaries. I'd never looked at the obituaries before. And in the obituaries, I saw an in-memoriam notice to this bastard man. Can you imagine? 
the chances of my looking into the obituaries and actually seeing this in-memoriam notice from his wife. Oh my God, what did it say? Well, it said he, it was an in-memoriam notice from his wife commemorating his death the, the year before. And how did, how did that feel when you saw that? I whooped around the house. I was just... Your oppressor is gone. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I couldn't believe the coincidence that I should read for the first time the obituaries and see this notice. And the first Shabbat, the first Sabbath, I was back from Israel. It was unbelievable. It was a gift for you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? It's, it, it is so unlikely that I went through a terrible time. Well, so did he, I mean, because of me. Also, he actually more or less murdered the woman who lived upstairs. The house was owned... There was an elderly couple, an elderly Jewish couple upstairs from him, and their daughter owned the house. And when we went away one weekend, we got back, and the, the elderly couple... She was in, in her 80s, and they'd had a row that day, and that night we found out that she had died because they never got along, the couple upstairs, with him downstairs. And the daughter eventually sold the house, and he refused to move out, so when the new owners came, he had not moved out. Then the police called and had to evict him. Oh, he's the most evil person I have ever met in my life. Well, good riddance. Yeah. Some people don't deserve the life they've given. Yeah. So that was the worst experience in my life. But it's, I do believe in what goes around comes around. Absolutely. I'm, yeah. I'm a believer in, in the power of sort of threes, where what you put out into the world, you get back threefold. Yeah. yeah. I had an At interest. Least. That reminds me of an experience. <laughs> I, w- I went, Eve and I, we went to visit my first lover, who was assigned to Bermuda with his actor lover of the time. And we were invited to, I think they made a cocktail party for us. And I met this, what I thought was a crazy woman from New York. And she said to me, I'm going to tell you a secret of life. I said, what? She said, if you give charity, you'll get it back tenfold. And I started, I do give charity, and I did give charity then, and I started to be conscious of this. And I was freelancing as a translator at the time. And invariably, when I gave some charity, I would get a job, which was more than the charity that I'd given. Unbelievable. Yeah, we are absolutely rewarded. And I do believe there's another dimension to life. I was with a French-Canadian who was an atheist. I did my thing. I didn't care what he thought of me. I mean, I made it a condition when I came back from Israel that the house, that the kitchen should be kosher. And he was wonderful with that. In fact, if I slipped up, he would point it out to me. <laughs> but, I mean, he could not share my religious observance. Well, he did in the house, obviously, but not outside, not in the synagogue. And I wouldn't have expected that of him. But I did my thing. He went along with it because he cared for me. But I never expected anything. I mean, for instance, I would never ever have dreamed of him converting. It wouldn't have made any sense. It wasn't him. But I did my thing regardless of what he did. Doesn't it feel lonely, though? Well, this is what I want. I want to bring this subject up. Community is very important. I think that's one of the advantages of gay and grey. I think it's a major advantage of gay and grey because it creates a community and a community is so important. You know, I have friends who might have one or two f- close friends, but they're virtually isolated because there's no community they belong to. It doesn't have to be religious. I mean, gay and gray is not religious. But I think community is very important, especially as you grow older. It's good because, you know, you have something in common with these people and you can share. I think most people have their own support network certainly at our age, which is apart from community. 
community is sharing past experiences and hopefully having some future experiences together. It doesn't have to be necessarily of a deep nature. I mean, I really enjoyed the picnics we had in Angrignon Park. And I, I don't think people realise how important community is. Perhaps the members of Gay and Grey do. But generally speaking, people will tolerate their own isolation, I think. And it's depriving them of a richness in life which they can have through other people. I completely agree. And I, I think a lot of that comes... Well, there's many reasons, but I think there's there's been a, a big emphasis on biological health and, you know, taking care of your body and making sure that that's good and making sure that economically you're doing well and making sure you have, you know, your family or whatever. And, and then you don't, then the conversation stops and we don't talk about how incredibly important our communities are yeah. to our well-being and there's more and more studies are, are being conducted with, you know, rats and whatever and, and seeing just how how valuable community really sure. is. And it makes it, it makes all the difference in your health, your well-being. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my major community is through the synagogue because it's not just religious observance. It's culture as well. And also they're very open to women. I mean, we have, it's an orthodox community, but we have two women who are, well, they've taken the title Rabbah, which is the feminine of rabbi. Hmm. So they're virtually rabbis. And they both give wonderful courses now on um, Zoom. I mean, I'm the only male, or one of, well, usually the only male in a, in a whole group of women for a course given by one of the female rabbis to a group of women. I don't care, you know. I still find it fascinating. I might have one or two friends in that group of women who are friends. Most of them I don't know. I mean, I know their names and I know their faces. But nevertheless, we're doing something together which is mentally and intellectually re rewarding, especially with older people. I mean, also, I don't know how many people of, of, of my age or our age, well, not, not your age, but, you know, in, in Gay and Grey, I don't know how, much, how important family is or whether they're still around. You know? Yeah, and I think that definitely changes from, from person to person because some people, you know, they've they've had children, you know, before they were before they came out. Yeah. And or even, <clears throat> you know, maybe they're bisexual and there's so some people do have family and others don't. Yeah. I mean, the, our age group in gay and gray kind of predates being able to being able to adopt as as a gay couple. So that was very recent. If I had been born 10 years later, I certainly would have adopted. I tried to have a child, which fortunately, I'll tell you about that, which fortunately did not work out because of the circumstances. We knew a lesbian couple, and there were actually Hungarian immigrants that came, I think, with the 1956 revolution in uh, Hungary. And they joined the gay Jewish group, which existed at the time. And we were very close with them. We, we shared meals. And Eve and I went away with them. I think we went to Lake Placid. And there was a conversation over dinner. And on the way back, I said to Eve, I said, those women want children. He said, you're crazy. He said, they're lesbian. I said, they still want children. A few weeks later, the more attractive of the couple announces that she was pregnant with one of the guys in the group. Whoa. And then they approached me and said, would I like to have a child with the other lesbian? Oh, and they can be pregnant together. Well, that wasn't the point. <laughs> But yeah, no, I, you know, I, I was yeah. very much for it. Eve was against it, but eventually came round. 
And actually this woman, they were both broadcasters with uh, Radio, Radio Canada International. And the one that I would have parented with was a brilliant artist, as well as being a broadcaster, very bright woman. Anyway, she found a gynecologist. I had to take what's necessary to the gynecologist, <laughs> which was injected into her. Yeah. And I think we did it twice. It's quite funny because I had to do it like three days in succession. All my secrets come out. <laughs> anyway, I found this pornographic novel. And the two heroes, one was named Keith and the other was named David. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's was it the most narcissistic you? thing you'd ever read? <laughs> anyway, I managed. I managed. And it, it, the first time it didn't take. And the second time she had, was it yeast infection or something? So we couldn't yeah, do it. Common, yeah. And the third time it was the circumcision of the boy of a lesbian. And then I went to Israel on my two-month leave of absence and decided I, I had to move there. So the whole project fell apart. Fortunately, because the husband of the lesbian who had the child, they actually had a regular Jewish wedding. The husband of the child uh, was Jewish, but didn't want to do anything Jewish, which would have gone against my desires. Mm -hmm. And he had a lover. So that any child I would have had would have had six parents. Whoa. Myself, Eve, the two women, the husband of the, the other that would lesbian, be amazing. and his lover. And I wouldn't have got along with, with, with the husband, the mm. Jewish husband. I'm just imagining being a child with six parents and, and... Oh, it would have been a disaster. Really? I think it would be great. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's if everybody gets along. Yes. And then another comp two other complications. The two women got a job with... What's the international radio station in Washington? Oh, anyway, know. it was an international radio station. So they moved to Washington. The husband also could move. He became as a teacher. And the other... And his lover married the woman that I was supposed to have the child with. You understand? So they, the four of them moved to Washington, yeah. and they had two. Vera uh, had two kids, so they were out of Montreal altogether. And I wouldn't have moved because Eve couldn't. Eve wouldn't have moved. And then disaster struck. It was very unfortunate. The mother of the two children got breast cancer, and she died. The kids were already out of the house. They were at university. Then, the lover of the husband, who wasn't that promiscuous, but obviously went with the wrong person. He was HIV positive, and he died of AIDS. Beautiful young man, French-Canadian. How old was he? Oh, in his perhaps late 20s, early 30s, very young. That wasn't the end. They, they had bought a duplex in near Washington, and the woman I was supposed to have a child with was bought out by the surviving husband, and she moved back to Montreal, and I helped her find a place, an apartment on DeCarry. Then she started behaving strangely. She stayed with me while she was looking. And I remember I was doing some washing and I asked her to, I had work to do, and I asked her to hang up the washing. Well, she tried to put all the clothes on one hanger, okay? Mm. Then I remember I had some chocolate liqueurs and she said, it sounds funny, she, she said to me, you know, you have to eat the whole thing, otherwise the, the liqueur, the, the liquid will drop on the floor, drip onto the floor. I said, yes. So we're in my bedroom and she takes a half a bite of the chocolate liqueur and the liquid goes onto the carpet. And I, I didn't understand what was going on. I, I sort of blew up. I said, you just told me that you could have to eat the whole thing. Anyway, unfortunately, she had dementia. And from a in very bright, intelligent woman and an artist, she became a vegetable. It was the most terrible thing. I think that's probably my biggest fear, dementia. She couldn't communicate in the end. 
Anyway, Tara, the daughter of the other one, was in Israel. She, want, she had become religious. She wanted to become a, the first Orthodox female rabbi. Anyway, the, her father told her she has to come back and take care of Zsuzsa, her name was. And she found a Hungarian hospice, I suppose you'd call it, and she got her in there. And she was taken very good care of. Now, I couldn't go and visit. I just, I couldn't face her. I didn't, couldn't com- I can't communicate with somebody who can't communicate. I felt terrible. But I went once or twice, but I couldn't do it. And I'm sure Tara, the daughter, resented that. And we have a, hardly any relationship now, although I've always said she's always welcome to come and stay and everything. But she died eventually, but she was about for seven years a vegetable. Just terrible. Anyway, so in a way I had a lucky escape that, that we didn't have a child. If I could have my time over again, I would have taken the risk of adopting. But because Eve would have loved that. Anyway. So, so there's, a, there's a story there, a mm-hmm. lucky escape, really, mm-hmm. because perhaps that child would have inherited the, the dementia. Who knows? Would have been a brilliant child, I'll tell you that. What with me and her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, between the two of you, it sounds yeah. like it would be... No, Could you imagine if that child ended up being just, like, very, you know, dim-witted and... I suppose that know, could have happened too, yeah. Maybe just economic-oriented, business, <laughs> well, conservative. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> But uh, it's a regret. I would have loved to have kids. Mm. I really would. I mean, my legacy is the book, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What else am I leaving behind? Nothing. 